Dr. Sarah alluded to, this Sunday we were supposed to start a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, but in God's providence, he has allowed Taylor to get the Rona a second time. <laughs> and he's allowed Taylor and John to keep hazing me, even though I thought, even though I thought 2022 was my year of breakthrough. So I'm in the pulpit this morning, not according to plan, but according to providence. And providence always trumps plans. That should get an amen. <laughs> so, so instead of starting a new sermon series on the second Sunday of Epiphany, we continue our mini-series on the Epiphany. Turns out neither I, the other pastors, or you knew we were doing a series on Epiphany. But here we are. Providence trumps plans. And last week, we examined the baptism of Jesus as he inaugurated his public ministry. This morning, we marvel at the reality and significance of the first miracle of Jesus when he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And this miracle is found only in John's gospel. So turn your Bibles now with me to John chapter 2. It's on page 887 of your pew Bibles. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. Allow me a moment to breathe a word of gratitude to my dear friend, um, brother, mentor, and pastor Josh Hughes. Uh, when Taylor called an audible on Friday, mere couple hours before my Sabbath was supposed to begin, I knew I wanted to preach this text, and I had some... Uh, notes for my personal study of the Gospel of John, but not enough to really kind of build out a sermon on. And the Holy Spirit led me to call Josh, and he, it, it so happened he had uh, recently preached from the text, and he was very gracious enough to share his research and his notes with me. So this sermon is indebted to his work and labor in the text. Um, I'm grateful to God, of course, for this fraternity of gospel-proclaiming um, brothers who love the word of God and the people of God and who hold sacred the duty of feeding the sheep with the, with the sound milk and meat of the word. And so we are all blessed together as a body uh, because of that. Praise be to God. All right, John 2, verses 1 through 11. Let us pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather at your feet this morning. We ask that you would speak to us anew, speak to us afresh. And bless us, O Lord, from your word. Feed us, O God, and let us be made whole. We ask, O Lord, that any burdens that we bring to the table would lay it at your feet, O God, and we instead take upon that which is light and the yoke which is easy. Uh, we ask, O Lord God, that I will be removed from the equation, that your people will see and hear only you, O God. Lord, give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart. O oh Lord, that I might speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A quick word to orient you to John's gospel. John is almost always communicating at two levels. There is a surface level significance to what Jesus is doing, and there's a deeper level of meaning to what is being done. John's gospel really is a collection of true stories concerning Jesus. And the purpose of his writing is so that we would know who Jesus was and what he did. 
But he also writes with a particular agenda, as he makes explicit in John chapter 20, verse 31. That is, that you might believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Keep in mind also that this is eyewitness testimony. John later in his epistle writes in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So this is eyewitness testimony. You can believe these words, that it happened just as the eyewitnesses say it happened. Jesus really was manifest on the scene of human history. And believe not just that it happened, but believe in what it all meant and what it all means. So this story is about Jesus performing a miracle and turning water into wine. He rescues some folks from social embarrassment and kickstarts a party that's gone sideways. That's the surface level meaning. But the deeper meaning is this, is that Jesus is here. The new wine has come. And so come, as the prophet Isaiah calls to us in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. The new wine Jesus brings is what your soul was made to drink. Whether you realize it or not, your soul is starving for Jesus. You see, the, the rancor and the rage that characterizes our culture today isn't actually about politics or COVID response or the progressives or the conservatives. All that could be fixed by lunch today. And by lunch tomorrow, we'd have come up with another reason to be furious and divisive. As Ray Ortland puts it, the deep reason for the angry, frustrated restlessness of our times is our raging thirst for wine here in a world of water. So the call of this text then is that you would come, come to Jesus and drink deeply of the new wine of his presence and grace. See here the gracious presence of our Lord Jesus as the story opens on the third day. Let me pause there for just a moment. This is the first week of Jesus' public ministry. This is two days after Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, better known as Bartholomew in chapter 1, right? John gives a careful accounting of the days of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And again, there's a surface meaning. John is giving us specific details like a good eyewitness. But there's also a deeper meaning. In giving this day-by-day -day accounting of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John is drawing a parallel to the work of creation in Genesis, Indeed, he mirrors the Genesis opening in his own opening. He starts in the beginning. John wants us to see the cosmic, redemptive, historical significance of Jesus' manifestation. It means more than merely a few interesting acts. It means recreation. Jesus is not just a man born in Galilee. 
He is the second Adam. He is the new federal head who comes to succeed where Adam failed and to rescue those who in Adam fell. He is doing a work of renewal in creation. That's, that's what we have here as he's inaugurating here in the first week of Jesus' ministry. And we see in verse 2 that Jesus was invited to the wedding along with his mother and his disciples. Or maybe the disciples were just hangers-on. And this couple is to be commended for inviting Jesus to their wedding. More importantly, though, Jesus accepted their invitation. In John 11, Jesus showed up for Mary and Martha at one of the saddest moments of life, the funeral of their brother. Here, Jesus shows up at one of the happiest moments of life, a wedding feast. Jesus wants to be a part of every aspect of your life. Adrian Rogers said it well, Jesus Christ wants to be with you on Monday morning at the office just as much as he wants to be with you on Sunday morning in church. And I love the hymn called, I Need Thee Every Hour. I assume the songwriter suffered a great deal to write such a song, but it turns out Annie Hawks, the author of the song, began thinking about the goodness of God as she was cleaning her kitchen. And it dawned on her that she needed the Lord every hour if it was going to stay this good. And so it is with you. If you invite the Lord into your life, into every detail of your every day, he will show up and surely he's going to be the life of the party. So here we are with Jesus at this joyous occasion, a, a wedding feast. Now, I don't know what the best wedding you've ever been at, but probably it wasn't as good as a first century Jewish wedding. I mean, these celebrations were ragers, and I expect nothing less than a rager at your wedding, Cassidy. <laughs> they, they went hard. They went hard at this wedding, okay? They partied literally for a week, and I mean literally in the literal sense. The problem, though, is they undershot the catering budget for this reception, and the party goes south real quick because the wine runs out. Now, this is bad, real bad, Michael Jackson. <laughs> In an honor-shame culture, like the context of this text, to run out of wine was a failure of hospitality resulting in severe and long-standing shame for the family. I mean, it could even open up the groom to lawsuits from the offended members of the bride's family. Can you imagine your drunk uncle suing your new husband's family because y'all ran out of booze at the reception? <laughs> like, that, that really was what could have happened. That being said, though, this is not what you consider a major, like, historical event, right? Max Lucado calls this a calamity on the common scale. The problems of life are often like that, no? Most often, the things we struggle with do not require calling 911 or calling the National Guard. Our problems don't often register on the Richter scale. Yet Jesus cares about the things that embarrass us. And you'll sometimes hear atheists and agnostics scoff at the idea that God could care about the small details of our lives. A celebrity once quipped, I think God has more important things to do 
than worry about who I spend my evenings with. That's the PG version. But Jesus does care. He cares about what's really troubling you. He cares about the final details of your life, even the stuff that you feel silly praying about. He cares. If it's significant to your heart, it's significant to his. He came, yes, to live and to die for your eternal soul and to redeem a people unto himself, but he also came to identify with you, to draw near to you. Jesus cared about the social embarrassment brewing in Cana of Galilee. The God of the universe cared about the party being a flop. And so he steps in to save the party. He becomes the life of the party. He gives wine to gladden the heart of man. And so what do you do? What do you do when the wine runs out? Mary shows us in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So when the wine ran out, Mary didn't go to the bride or to the groom. She didn't go to the master of the feast or the servants. She didn't go to the disciples to quickly go do a liquor run at the Aleph Bet Gimel fine wine and spirits. She went to Jesus. That's ABC in Hebrew, ABC fine wine and spirits. She took the problem to Jesus and placed it at his feet. This is what you ought to do when the wine runs out. Tell Jesus. Now Jesus responds to his mother, woman, what that got to do with me? <laughs> Kids, do not try this at home, okay? Don't say, well, Jesus responds to his mom like that. That will not save you from the backhand of fellowship <laughs> that your mom gives you. Okay, let's unpack this. Woman is not like I read it, okay? There's, there's no real English equivalent from the original language. It's more like ma'am, all right? It's an expression of polite distance, as, as is the question that Jesus poses to her. And Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, John's gospel records several instances in which Jesus spoke about his hour. During the Feast of Bruce, Jesus' brothers tried to get him to go to Judea. In John 7, 6, Jesus responded, my time has not yet come. In John 13, 1, he says he knew that his hour had come during the Last Supper. In John 17, 1, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, Jesus' hour refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. Because it was on the cross that Christ was glorified, not at a wedding feast. Jesus refused to do anything that would hinder his appointment with the cross. Now, this is the tension between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. It separates the suffering of Christ from the reign of Christ. But the Lord did not compromise the ultimate for the expedient. And he will not do so now. You must wait for his hour. Now, in a sense, Jesus' response to Mary comes because the horizon of her gaze is set too low. Jesus comes to deal with the wine shortage, yes, 
but not the one she has in view. He comes to bring the feast, Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord will host, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Jesus' coming means the wine our souls long for has come. That's what he came to do. Yet still, Mary was undeterred by Jesus' response. Her presumptions were mildly rebuked, but her faith was unaffected. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, I could just imagine Mary's, like, uh-huh. All right, um, guys, just do whatever he tells you to do. This, this, this is the open secret for experiencing the power of Jesus in your life. Do whatever he tells you. Personal obedience is a human platform for a divine miracle. Obey the Lord actively. Do. Obey the Lord completely. Do whatever. Obey the Lord exclusively. Do whatever he tells you to do. This is the inseparable marriage of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Without God, you cannot do it. Without you, God will not do it. When you have done all that you can do, Jesus will do what you cannot do. But you must do whatever he tells you to do. Now, even though it was not his hour here, Jesus is not indifferent to the physical need before him. Jesus isn't a Gnostic who sees the soul as good and the body as evil. Jesus delights in feasting, in a marriage celebration, in good wine. He loves Mary. He pulls back the veil, therefore, that covers the land between and because of sin to let the true and eternal world in for just a moment as a witness to his glory and his heart. So Jesus says to the servant in verse Seven, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up with the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, the servants knew they poured water into the jars, right? And they knew the master of the feast would be expecting wine, not water. Yet, they did what Jesus commanded. And somewhere between pouring in and pouring out, the water turned to wine. The water saw its creator and blushed into new wine. This, this is the transforming power of Jesus Christ. There is no reality in your life that Jesus cannot change. Jesus can heal your broken heart. Jesus can comfort your troubled mind. Jesus can lift your heavy burdens. Jesus can fix your family problems. Jesus can meet your financial needs. Jesus can heal your bodily illness. Jesus can save your lost soul. But it gets better. There is a detail here we ought not skip past too quickly as it underlies the significance of this miracle. There, there's a deeper meaning to be had here. After the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he remarks, what gives, man? Everyone served the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, maybe not gotten drunk, 
Then the poor wine comes in. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast speaks better than he knew. As he gives us a clue to the significance, the deeper meaning of this miracle, it's a parable of redemptive history in miniature. And we know this because of a seemingly throwaway detail in verse 6. John highlights for us that the jars of water that were filled to the brim are for the Jewish rites of purification. So what does it mean that Jesus turns the water of Old Testament ritual purification to wine? It means, it means that we don't need that water anymore because what those jars signify and point to has finally come. The water of temporary provisional purification gives way to the wine of Jesus purifying, party catalyzing presence. The Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament is promises fulfilled. With the incarnation and the epiphany of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one has come. This is the progression from the Old Testament to the New, from John the Baptist to Jesus. John comes wearing weird clothes and eating locusts and fasting and embracing austerity. But when Jesus comes, oh, when Jesus comes, he comes eating and drinking. John the Baptist has a ministry of conviction and repentance. Jesus comes with tidings of comfort and joy. The glorious wedding feast gets going when Jesus is on the scene. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish convert to Christianity in the 19th century, comments about this text saying, we see Jesus entering his ministry in contrast with the Baptist asceticism. We behold Jesus now as freely mingling with humanity, sharing its joys and engagements, entering into its family life, sanctioning and hallowing all by his presence and blessings. Then as transforming the water of legal purification on our felt want into the wine of his giving. And there's a, there's a further significance here in how Jesus points to the emptiness of the system of the day. See, the wedding parties running out of wine can be seen as symbolizing the spiritual barrenness of first century Judaism, especially against an Old Testament background that viewed wine as a sign of joy in God's blessing. Indeed, the story that immediately follows after this one in John's gospel is the cleansing of the temple of those who had perverted the worship of God with worldly commerce. When, when pressed to explain himself, Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Because in Christ, the true temple of God, relocated from a building to a person, the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus gives a holy wink to this new reality by using sacred water pots to turn water into wine. And in using water pots, Jesus is saying, religion is empty, but I, I am the only way to God. So you ask, how can I be saved? Jesus answers, I am the way. You ask, how can I be sure? Jesus answers, I am the truth. 
You ask, how can I be satisfied? Jesus answers, I am the life. So John 1.17 says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you want rules and rituals and regulations that do not save ultimately, go to Moses. But if you want grace and truth, run to the bloody cross and place your faith in Jesus Christ who saves. Now, now think about this irony. Moses' first miracle was to turn water into blood as a statement of God's divine judgment. Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine to illustrate God's amazing grace. And did not, did not God's judgment and grace find their consummation in Jesus Christ? So he, he's told his mother that his hour has not yet come, but it would be soon. The hour is coming. Tim Keller comments here that Jesus is probably thinking about his own wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he knows that the bridegroom is responsible for the wine. And we remember this every Sunday at the table. His blood is the wine. But before he can take the church as his bride, he will have to die to make us ready for the feast. And I can just imagine, I can imagine Jesus kicking back with a goblet in his hand, music playing, people dancing, his disciples laughing and a smile on Jesus' face as he leans back, but with a twinge of sorrow in his soul, knowing what would have to happen in order for the fullness of the true wedding feast to come about. The one that this and every wedding feast points to ultimately. Edmund Clowney says this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all of this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. For it is at that appointed hour, he was lifted up, and we beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The same Jesus who turned water into wine, turned sinners into sons of God. Hallelujah. That this is the miracle that it points to. And friends, I invite you during this feast of epiphany to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. That the wine of fellowship with Christ has come. That Christ has come and wants to commune with you. And even if you've drunk of all that this world has to offer, Jesus is better still. Indeed, to paraphrase the master of the feast at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus is the best you will ever have. Come, come, friends, come, taste and see that the Lord is good, better, best. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Oh, thank you, Lord, for feeding us with the bread of your word. Lord, now as we gather around your table, even to recall 
that day, your brokenness of your body and the shedding of your blood. Let our minds be tuned to the coming feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we will one day reign with you forever and ever. But Lord, even in this world of water, Lord, let us taste of the wine that you have provided through and by the person of Jesus Christ. That we will forsake every blindness of this world, that which will not truly satisfy, and come to you, the bread, the water, the wine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.